You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Wow, good morning. Oh. Hey, folks, this is a great, this is the largest crowd we've had since March. Mm-hmm. When we, when we closed down for that six months and went completely to virtual, and I can't tell you how dangerous this is because when you give teachers a full house, there's oh, no man. telling what they're going to do. You thought we were wheels off before. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if things get out of hand today, it's your fault. That's right. That's, that's all I can say. Uh, we've had to open up some rows, and so I'm going to ask you if you are sitting directly behind someone, which we've tried to avoid, if you would keep your mask on, I think that would make everyone uh, more comfortable. It's a, not a bad idea for all of us to do that, but uh, we've left that option open. But if you are sitting directly behind someone without, without an empty row uh, between you, then do that for us, and that will help them feel that you're not breathing the COVID down their neck. Mm, mm. Okay. Well, God bless you. I'm gonna Take I'm gonna us. I'm gonna begin with the story this morning. I um, those of you who don't who don't know me super well. I uh, before I came to the church, I came on staff here in 2008, J- July of 2008. Uh, prior to that, uh, after I graduated, I graduated high school in 2004. And those uh, few years in between, I jumped in and immediately got my real estate license. Began selling real estate. I have family in real estate, and I started working for Remax Associates of Arlington, and. Um, being a young guy, I, obviously, I, I had to kind of fight an uphill battle. Not many people want to buy a house from an 18 or 19-year-old kid. And so I uh, ended up with these accounts that I, I got from a family member that were kind of too burdensome because there was a lot of extra paperwork that allowed me to list foreclosures for a couple of banks that only financed single, double, and triple wide houses. And, um, and it kept me so busy because I would get like 10 or 11 a month and they were always like spread all across Texas. And I'd go on road trips every weekend to list them. I mean, it was a dream for an 18, 19 year old kid. I'd bring my friend with me, we'd go on a road trip, we'd go and eat at all these different little hole in the wall restaurants and it was a blast. One time I had a, a double wide that I listed in Joshua, Texas, which is obviously not that far from here. That's deep east Texas. Deep east, um, not too far from here at all, but this was Joshua circa like 2005, right? So this is like 16 years ago. Joshua's grown a little bit. If you've been in there, you're like, it has? It has, really? I promise. Really? It was, it was very, Those very Those northerners small. and Californians that are moving Absolutely. to Texas, they're moving to Joshua. They're going to Joshua. <laughs> so I got a house that I, I listed there. And um, I, I, this, I, we didn't have iPhones. iPhones didn't exist. Smartphones didn't exist. I had to use MapQuest. Anyone remember MapQuest? Yeah, you had to actually print on paper your directions. I remember paper maps. Right, well, I do too, but, but MapQuest was like innovative, right? And so I uh, typed the address in, I got my four or five pages of directions, and off I go. And, and I make it out to Joshua, I make it into the neighborhood. I immediately notice as I'm going into this neighborhood that, man, something is, is different about this neighborhood. For example, one of the houses when you first walked in, um, they were all double wides, but, but one of them had these massive poles on either side of the house in the front that went up probably 25 feet and they had a tarp stretched out 
and it was tied to each of these poles so that when you drove by the house, you couldn't see the house. All you see was this massive tarp. Yeah, Talk about a privacy there fence, There were some right? things going on behind that there, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot next to it that had like one of those prefabricated uh, like sheds, work sheds that you can get from Home Depot, and it had a couch outside. This was the, where the guy was living in a little shed. So I'm thinking like, oh man, where have I, what have I gotten myself into? Those are my people. Actually. Yeah, yeah. James was out there somewhere. Um, and so I'm driving through, I get to where the, the house should be, and there's no house. And I'm like, this is really weird. And so I called Troy. It was a meth he was, lab and it he blew was up. My, yeah. He was, my, he was my rep. And I said, hey, I said, what, what's the deal? I, I can't find the house. And he goes, well, it should be there. What are you talking about? I said, I, he goes, I was just there last week. I said, there's no house here. And he goes, are you sure in the right spot? And I, I'm looking at the street sign. I'm like, yeah, I'm on the right street. This is where the address should be. And he goes, the little white house next to it. And I'm going, there's no white house next to this one. <laughs> And he goes, okay. And he goes, you're sure you're on the right spot? And I said, I'm positive, Troy. I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the street sign. This is where I'm supposed to be. And he goes, okay, well, give me a few minutes. I'll call you back. I'll figure out what's going on. So I'm sitting there, and there's people kind of out and about just hard staring at me, right? And I'm like, just waving at them, right? 19-year-old kid. <laughs> you city boy. You stood out. Yeah, I stood out bad. <laughs> so my phone eventually rings. Troy calls me. He says, Derek, you need to get out of there right now. And I said, why? He goes, don't ask any questions. Just put your car and drive and drive. So I put it in reverse and back out and start driving. And I said, Troy, what in the world is going on? And he goes, there are two streets in Joshua with the same name. And your maps took you to the other one. And he goes, in that neighborhood, the Joshua police don't even go into at night because of how dangerous it is. He said, it's one of the number one meth distributing locations in all of Texas. And I'm just sitting there, you know, idiotically waving at them. Hey, I mean, I have no idea <laughs> you got what's going on. all over you. I do, right. <laughs> I do. So I, I ended up in a place that I had no intention of being. And, and, and oh, I, I asked myself at one point while I was sitting there, how did I get to this point? How did this happen? Right? And, and I mean, the reality is the map, MapQuest didn't know how to differentiate between the two. I went to the wrong place because I was literally led there. I didn't make a wrong turn. I followed directions. Mm -hmm. And I still ended up in the wrong spot. And I thought about that, that, that story this morning because as we dive into this passage in Exodus chapters 13 and 14, what we're going to find are Moses and the Hebrews end up in some places that they certainly did not intend to go to, nor did they try to go to. They didn't think it was a good idea to go there. They went there because their GPS, their map quest, if you will, God himself leads them there. And, and I have to imagine that several times as they're on this journey, they're thinking to themselves, how did we get here? How did this happen? And the reality is they were led that way. Now, I would wager this morning, if we were all being honest, that we've all ended up somewhere, spiritually speaking, and we've asked ourselves, how did I get here? Some of them are asking that question right now. Some of now. them are asking, yeah, how did I end up in this room? <laughs> Guess are, I'm sorry. Who are these guys? Uh, yeah. And it's because, and this is what we want you to take away this morning, it's because God sometimes leads us there. Sometimes God, now sometimes it's from disobedience, that's another sermon, but sometimes God leads us to places that we had no intention of going, that we ask ourselves, how did we get here? And it's because God has a purpose for us to be in that place. It's usually difficult, it usually conjures a lot of negative feelings, and so we're going to talk through how we fight through those negative feelings this morning and understand what it is that God is really doing. So James is actually going to begin this morning talking about discouragement that comes 
from detours. <laughs> you know, uh, we've been doing this series now for what, five weeks? Yeah about identity crisis for Moses. We started in Exodus 3 and Exodus 3 and 4 and, and who God is. And then, I, you know, the identity thing that uh, Moses was dealing with, his inferiority. And it's been a very practical series. But we told you that while we were in the neighborhood of Exodus, there's just a few places we need to visit while you're there. You can't go to Exodus and not visit a few other places. Right. And so this is one of those places that we wanted to visit this morning. And so what we're going to talk to you about this morning is detours, dead ends, and dry holes. Because that's what happens in chapter 13, 14, and 15. Detours, dead ends, and dry holes. You see, the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 13 had just come out of bondage. In other words, Moses has finally obeyed God. He's gone to Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. The Hebrew people have followed Moses out. They've come through the Red Sea. And they have gotten out. And it says in chapter 13, verse 14, that with a powerful hand... The Lord had brought them out of the house of slavery. Now, in other words, God had did, did some really incredible stuff to get them out of Egypt and out of bondage. And then in verse 17, it says, now it came about that when Pharaoh had finally let them go, that God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. In other words, really what he's actually saying is that after all of this time in Egypt, four centuries, as a matter of fact, for all of the Hebrew people, finally they are going to begin moving toward the promised land that God had promised to their father Abraham. They knew it was rightly for theirs, and someday he would lead them out. They're finally getting to do that. They're headed for the promised land, and immediately they face a detour. It says that he didn't take them the nearest route, which was through the land of the Philistines, but he took them on a detour. He sends them on a longer route. Now that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Why would God do that? I mean, there's a straight shot. We kind of all know that there's a, you know, the shortest place between two, distance between two places is what? A, kind of a, a straight line. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and detours are, well, we don't like detours. How many of you like a detour? Okay. Not a one. No hands? It's a good... It's a How good many of you don't like a detour? I'd rather get a positive response there. Absolutely. Detours are horrible. You're in a hurry. You've finally gotten started where you want to go, whether it's going to the grocery store or taking the kids to school or whatever, and then you get rerouted. Maybe there's a wreck. Maybe there's construction. Maybe there's just somebody that fell asleep at the wheel at the red light or whatever, and everybody's having to go, but you just kind of sit there and you kind of go, grrr. But the truth of the matter is, in our lives, sometimes God uses detours. And that's exactly what he's doing in Exodus chapter 13. You see, he, he comes to us like he did to Moses and to the Hebrew people. It's time to go. I'm going to lead you out. And we, we maybe argue with him as Moses did and, and even as the children of, of Israel did about following Moses. But then we finally come to the place, okay, Lord, we're going to get on board with what you want us to do. So now, Lord, let's get it done or as a friend of mine out in West Texas says, get it did. Let's get it did, Lord. Let's go get this thing done. And then immediately, right out of the box, you face a detour. Mm. We almost want to say, Lord, can you read a map? Lord, has your GPS gone on the fritz? And I can assure you that that is not the case. Because very often, detours are actually a part of following God's will. Detours are something that God 
purposely does in our lives. Now, we send ourselves on some stupid detours, right? Oh, yeah. Those are not good detours. Those are not, you don't want to be sending yourself on your own detours, but when the the creator of heaven and earth chooses to send you on a detour. You can see the destination maybe, but you, he's not taking you straight at it. He's taking you a roundabout way, even though you believe you're following his will. What is God up to? Well, this text gives us at least two reasons for this detour in the lives of the Hebrew people that are ultimately for their good. And whenever the father is the author of the detour, it is always for our good. Can we say that together? It is always for our good. That's right. Because he's doing one of two things when he sends you on that detour. One, perhaps he is preparing you for a greater victory. He is preparing you even for a greater understanding when you actually get ultimately where he's going to take you. Now, we're going to go into that a little bit deeper here in a moment. But for now, I want you to remember what God is doing for his people. He is doing something wonderful. He is doing something good. He is delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. But he's not only leading them out of something, he's leading them also towards something, right? Mm -hmm. He's not only taking them out of Egypt, but he is leading them into the land that he has promised them. And oftentimes in our lives, as in theirs, there is a, a gap. We've talked about the inferiority gap, okay, a few weeks ago, that your inferiority gap is, is that gap between who you feel you are and who you feel you should be, there is a gap. And that is an inferiority gap. And that's what Moses was struggling with. Well, let me tell you, often there is also a deliverance gap. When between that time, when we get on board with what God is going to do with us and we start moving and then we actually get to that end thing that we already know is there, oftentimes there is a gap. There's a time frame in between when we begin and when we Arrive. There's a time frame between when you go out and when you go in. And quite often, quite frankly, that gap is for our own preparation. In other words, that time is to get us ready for when we actually go in. Because sometimes when we go out, we're not really ready to go in. Can you get that? Can you wrap yourself around that? God has a purpose, God has a plan, God is working and he takes us out of this, but we're not really ready yet to go in. And so there's some, there's some work that has to be done in between and that is that deliverance gap. Mm. So part of the detour, as we're gonna see in a moment, and we're going to it a little deeper, was to prepare the Hebrew children for what they were going to face when they actually got where God was going to. They weren't ready to receive that. So part of this detour is to prepare them to go in to receive what God had promised. But the other thing that God is doing with them, and it's quite obvious from the text, he actually t tells us this, he's protecting them. So he's, he's gonna prepare them in this gap time but he's also protecting them from something that they're not even aware of. And notice it says that he led them away from the shortest route. That the, the, the land was near. They could have taken a straight shot. Verse 17 of Exodus 13 tells us what that land was about. He says it didn't, he didn't send them by the way of the Philistines, which was near. Are you getting that? 
How many of you remember the Philistines? I don't remember a time in the Bible the Philistines are mentioned when they're, it's good. We're good, no. It's, it's, it's not good. It's that never is. good. When the Philistines are part of the party, it's, the party's going south. That's right. Okay? So here are these Philistines, which is the nearest route. So God takes them another way. And it goes on and tells us why. God tells us why. He knows his people. He says, because when they see war, they'll turn and go back to Egypt. <laughs> the Philistines are a mighty warring people. And the shortest route from bondage to the promised land is directly through the land that is inhabited by these mighty warriors, the Philistines. So God takes them on another route. Now, Moses is leading a bunch of people who had lived centuries, generation after generation after generation in bondage. They'd been told what to do. They'd been under the heavy hand of the Pharaohs. They had been at hard labor. They had not made any decisions on their own. And they certainly were not warriors because they were slaves in Egypt. So they weren't given weapons. They weren't given shields and swords. They, they couldn't defend themselves. And that's who they are. And it had been ingrained in them culturally for all of those years. They quite frankly, we're not ready to face the Philistines. And God knew if he put them into that place immediately, the shortest route, they would turn tail and they would go right back into Egypt. And so there was going to be a time that they were going to have to spend to prepare. Now, it's interesting that later on, there's a time when they do face the Philistines, right? And they kick butt and take names. But had they been, is that okay to say button church? It's just one, one T, but you know, like the conjunction, if you need that. But right now, they were not ready to face. If they saw the Philistines, they'd turn right around and go back into the land of Egypt. Now, I know from my life and I know from your life, when God doesn't lead us in immediately, see, because we're going from and we're going in. When God doesn't lead us in immediately, we often don't understand or we're not willing to stop and think about it, what are you protecting me from, Lord? Because he's either preparing you or he's protecting you. He may be protecting you from something. He may be protecting you from someone. Folks, he may be protecting you from yourself. Mm. And I'm really the person that I need the most protecting from, really. You know what? I make my own messes most of the time. And so sometimes this deter time, this deliverance gap, is that God is preparing me internally. There's maybe not any Philistines out there. There's maybe not anything there waiting me that's going to be, but I'm just not ready personally in order to receive that which God wants me to have. You see, we can do the right thing, but if you do the right thing at the wrong time, it's wrong, right? And so God not only has a purpose. God not only has a place, but God also has a time. He is time conscious. And I love the passage in Galatians uh, where it says about the birth of Christ. Yep. It says, and when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In other words, it had been centuries. Yep. Centuries the prophets had been talking about the promised Christ, the promised Messiah. No Christ, no Messiah. Why? Because it wasn't the right time. And so when God said, okay, now it's time. He's prepared everything. When the fullness of time had come, then God sent forth his son. And the same thing is true in the way that he works with us. When the fullness of time has come, the deliverance gap 
will become, will go away and he will lead us in. Now there are three things about the wilderness that are going to prepare them for what they're going to ultimately face. First of all, the wilderness was a place of incredible difficulty. If you've ever read through the wilderness experience, this is not a, this is not a nice place. Okay. This is like where I, where I uh, grew up in West Texas on steroids. Okay. I mean, the terrain was tough. Travel was difficult. And so what they're doing in these decades that they're in the wilderness experiences, they're getting toughened up. And along the way, God even allows them to face lesser enemies than the Philistines. And so they're, you know, they're, they're learning. They're learning how to be warriors. They're learning how to protect themselves for that perfect time when they would go into the land and they would face that ultimate warrior. So it's a time of difficulty. It's also a time of drought. There's not a lot of water in the wilderness. In fact, in West Texas, you know how we watered our golf courses? How's that? They took sewer water, cleaned it, and sprinkled it on the golf course. They call it, uh, what do they call it? Huh? No? Doggone it. I can't remember that word. They had signs all over the golf course warning you uh, about the water, okay? I don't know how purified it was, but it wasn't purified enough to drink. It wasn't potable water, Mm. okay? Uh, It's water that you, only good for the pot, actually. Sounds like, sounds like Pantigo word. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could. I'm going to remember that word. Charlie, if Charlie Anderson was here, he could tell me that word. But anyway, we had signs all over the golf course. And uh, because there's just not a lot of water out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And there was even less there. And so they're learning endurance. And we're going to mention a little bit more about that in a moment. You say, man, you keep saying we're going to mention more. Well, we're getting to the good stuff. Right. The third thing is that this wilderness experience for them was a time of discipline. Hmm. They were learning discipline, but they were also learning God's discipline, and that's even more important. So what God's heavy hand of discipline was on them during this entire detour experience, teaching them, you must do what I tell you, and teaching them, it is not going to go well for you when you do not do what I tell tell you. So God is growing them in their willingness to obey him, to trust him. Let me give you an example. You remember the book of Joshua? The book of Joshua opens up. They're about to go across the Jordan River into the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua now is appointed to lead them in. This is many, many years later. So they're finally going into the land. Right off the bat, what do they face? There's a town, a city called Jericho. It was a fortified city. And Jericho blocked their way, so they had to take the city of Jericho. Remember how God told them to take the city of Jericho? It sounded so stupid. Worst military strategy ever. I mean, from a military perspective, and by this time Joshua was a military general, he says, okay, now go around, march around the city one time for six days, and then let the priests blow seven trumpets on the seventh day, and then march around on the seventh day seven times, and then shout, and you'll have it. I can imagine them, geez, Lord, we're going to look stupid. The Jerichoites are going to be standing on the ramparts looking. In fact, they were. That's exactly what they were making fun of these Hebrew people marching around their city and blowing their little trumpets. But you see, this is how God said to do it. And by this time, they've learned the lesson. When the Lord says to do it this way, this is the way we better do it. And so they did it. But see, that lesson was being taught. That lesson was being learned. That lesson was being reinforced in the wilderness experience. In fact, if you look at the book of Exodus, it's filled with detours. It is filled with detours. So God would speak, they would hear, they would do their own thing. God would say, take another lap around Mount Sinai. 
you're not yet ready to enter into the promised land. So there is this discouragement of detours, which is a time of preparation, but it is also often a time of protection. A second thing, it leads to the despair of dead ends. Now, here's the interesting thing. God led them on this detour, like James said, away from the shortest route and ultimately brings them not to glory, but to a dead end, right? I mean, just like he just said, he took them on a detour to protect them, to prepare them, and you would think like, okay, that God has mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. God protected them. God's prepared them. They're ready to go. But that's not what happens at all. They end up in a dead end. They're at the very foot of the Red Sea. Of course, they have no boats. So this whole plan looks like it is going even worse. And they're even presented with a bigger problem. Um, As you know, one of the worst parts about a detour, have you ever noticed that when when you're in a hurry somewhere, like you have a deadline, that's when the detour appears? Is it just me? <laughs> right. So, so their bigger issue here is time. They've just been on this long detour. This has taken way longer than what was necessary, and it's given Pharaoh plenty of time to begin rethinking letting go his free manual labor. He doesn't like this plan very much anymore, and so he begins to send his army after them, 600 chariots and his entire Egyptian army after Moses and the Hebrews. So they're discouraged by the detour they go on. They're in straight-up despair when they hit this dead end at the Red Sea, and they can hear and see Pharaoh's army coming after them. Now, I want you to understand this because this is an important part of the the story. This is, again, not a mistake. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't the result of disobedience either. Again, that's another sermon. We often end up in dead ends created by our own dumb actions. This is not one of them, right? Later on, 40 years of that happens. Right now, they are here because God has brought them here. And he has brought them here for a purpose. And there's actually uh, several from the text that we're going to talk about here. Number one, he brings them to a dead end to proclaim his glory. Exodus chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, it says, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and this is God speaking, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, and they did so. Now, what is God saying here? He says, I've led you to this dead end, where the most powerful person in the entire world is coming after you with with, with what is probably the largest army in the entire world. I'm going to lead you to a place that you cannot escape from. They're going to box you in, and I'm going to step in and beat the pants off of him so badly, the whole world is going to go, there's no way they could have done this without God. Now, that's a rough translation, by the way. This is their Um, God. But this this is God's plan. I am going to proclaim my glory in this victory. Now, don't get hung up. Some of you, I know, uh, you get hung up on the God hardens Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> I, I loved uh, a week, two weeks ago, uh, the first session of our um, cults class on, on Mormons. Dr. Kearns mentioned this. I thought this was really great. Do you know how many times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Eight times. Do you know how many times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart? <laughs> Eight times. <laughs> Right, God isn't hardening anything that Pharaoh isn't already in charge of. Pharaoh is a disobedient, rebellious, evil man. God is using that to accomplish his purpose. And in this case, for the world to proclaim his glory. And we get sidetracked into thinking, it's all about me. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, if I get there, if I can do my thing, man, I am somebody. And God said, it isn't about you, it's It's, about my glory. It's about my glory. 
It is about my glory. God is going to orchestrate events and times and places for his honor and glory. That's exactly right. Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is how God is going to accomplish this victory. It's not going to be because you're bigger or better than Pharaoh and his army. You're not. It's going to be by my spirit. Psalm 20, verse 7, some boast in chariots and some in horses. Sounds like Pharaoh, doesn't it? But we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. You see, sometimes the only reason God leads you to a dead end is to proclaim his glory. Now, I will say this. God is interested in his glory always in everything he does. But sometimes it's the only thing he's interested in. Sometimes the entire purpose for why he leads you to where you are is for those to see his glory um, presented in your life and whatever that that situation is. Isaiah 42 verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor Mm. praise to graven images. No one gets no one gets the credit but God himself. Psalm 72, 19, and blessed be his glorious name forever and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now, That's see, why he so often chooses idiots like us so that uh, we can't take the glory. <laughs> exactly. They're like, there's no way those guys did it, yeah. right? And, but we do it anyway. <laughs> but we do it anyway. And, and this dead end that God leads the Hebrews on does exactly that. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He tells Moses, take out your staff, hold it out. The waters are going to separate at the Red Sea. You and the Hebrews are going to walk right through the center on dry ground the whole way with water on one side and water on another side. And then as they get to the other side, Pharaoh's army has now entered into this, this uh, uh, separation of waters as well. They're, they're hot on their tails. And, and God says, okay, now Moses, do the same thing. And he holds his staff out again. The waters collapse. In fact, Exodus 14, 28 says, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. You have to Game imagine that set match. <laughs> you have to imagine that Moses, when God said, okay, Moses, raise the staff and, I'm, and the sea's gonna part. And Moses goes, that's the plan? That's the plan? Really? Yeah. Really? That's the plan? Yes, Moses, that's the plan. Yeah, yeah. Well, imagine, imagine, you know, parting the, the water and walking through and seeing like the sharks looking at you like, I hope this water collapses. I'm hungry. I'm coming after you. Fish are friends. Fish are friends. <laughs> Hebrews are friends. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> Not food. <laughs> you got to get this. Sometimes God will lead you to difficult dead ends to proclaim his glory. And I want to ask you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with God leading you in that way? That's one of the things he does in this passage. Secondly, he does it not only to proclaim his glory, but to perfect his people. What is, what is the goal of God for every Christian? It's to perfect us into the image of his son, Jesus. That, that's his end goal, to make you more like Jesus and less like your own dumb self. I thought he wanted me to live in a big house and drive a fancy car. Right. That's, that's, that's the next level of Christianity. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's not available to us regular folk. Christianity 2.0. Okay. Right, yeah, exactly. Us lowly folk, no. So this is the word that we use uh, to, to describe this as sanctification. It's a, a big theological word, but what it really means is the process of being perfected into the image of Jesus. Now listen, dead ends perfect us. Now why is that? Because in a dead end, we have no choice but to trust in him. Mm-hmm. There's no way out. 
There's, there's really, there are actually two options. There are two, a dead end can become one of two places. It can either become a place of dependence, which is what it's meant to be, yeah. or it can become a place of despair. <laughs> it's either a, a place of faith or a place of fear. Now let's look at what happened here in this, in this passage. It became a place of fear, actually, for the Hebrews at first, not faith. Um, they, they give in to this fear, and it begins to take a toll on them. The way they think about God, the way they think about their scenario, everything gets turned around and twisted because they are not operating out of a place of faith or dependence, but fear and despair. What does fear do to us? What is the, the effect of fear on our lives? Let's talk about that for a moment. Number one... Fear makes us cynical. Fear makes us cynical. Exodus 14.10, it says, They feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, crying out to the Lord is a good thing. Do, do we agree about that? It's a good thing. But this wasn't a cry of dependence. You know how I know that? Look at the very next verse, verse 11. It says, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? How cynical is this? They're crying out to the Lord saying, you gave us this idiot yeah. to lead us here? After everything that has happened, this is where we are. 400 years of slavery, being beaten, making bricks in the hot sun. You have the signs, you have Passover, which we're going to talk about on Easter. And now this, I mean, they hit a dead end and they're like, are you really trying to kill us, Moses? Was this your great plan? We should have stayed this is crazy, but listen, that's what fear does. Fear makes you crazy. It makes you think things that are crazy. It makes you think the worst of everyone around you. It makes you assume the worst about everyone around you. Despite what history shows, you question and you doubt the motives of every person in your life. Everyone is out to get you. There was history here with Moses. I thought they were. Moses, right. <laughs> Moses had, had done everything on their behalf. And they knew this. They had seen the signs. They had seen the miracles. They had seen him do all the things that he had done. But listen to that. Nothing that none of that matters when you're living in fear. Fear makes you insane. It's literally a form of insanity. 1 John 4, 8 says, There is no fear in love, but for perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now this is talking about punishment from God for sin. And what John is saying is here is, is when we're connected to God by his love, we don't fear judgment. We don't fear punishment because we're, we know God loves us. We're perfected by it. When we're outside of God's love, the only thing we have to do is fear because we know innately there's something broken inside of me and God's judgment is coming for me at any moment. Fear is this kind of torment that will destroy your life from the inside out if you let it. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. This will, this will maybe make you think a little. We're going to just throw all kinds of things at you here this morning. Did you we, know? You got a yeah. mouse in your pocket? Yeah. You're the one doing all the talking. Did you know that there is a difference between reality and truth? Reality and truth. Now, follow me here for a moment. God is the author of truth. We believe that. All truth proceeds from God. I am often the author of my own reality. So what happens, here's what happens, is we create our realities, and when we're walking in fear, it is a fear-driven reality, and so often what happens is my reality that I'm living in is as far away as possible from what is actually true. Mm. So I create my reality based on my perception of other people. I base, 
my, my reality on my perception of myself, of events that have happened, and what I come away with is a reality that is very different from the truth that God has set forth. It's still my reality, right? But it's just very different. Now, why is that? Because I've created my reality out of fear and cynicism, not the truth of God. Amen. That's exactly what is happening here with these Hebrews. They are living in a place of fear, and their reality is now Moses is out to get us. He has led us here to die. He's going to bury us out here. He has no idea what he's doing. This was a horrible plan. This is why your reality, the scripture says, does not set you free. <laughs> in fact, often it enslaves you. It is the truth that sets you free. This is why God does his renewing work. Where? The renewing of the mind. In the mind. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He takes your crazy reality made from cynicism and fear, and he replaces it with his truth so that your reality and the truth of God becomes the same thing. It is fear that causes you to read a weird tone into what other people are saying when they talk to you. That, come, that may come as a shock to you. It is fear. Now, sometimes people are just talking to you wrong, Okay. But oftentimes, you are reading a tone into it if you're operating out of a place of fear that doesn't exist. It's fear that makes you think that other people are out to get you. It's fear that drives you to gossip and slander and tear other people down because they're a threat to you. Mm -hmm. It's because the reality that you've created has caused everyone in your life to seem like a threat to you. It makes you cynical. It tears everything that is good in your life down and allows you only to see what is not only bad, but what is non-existent. Not not only that, it gets better. (laughs) Fear makes us selfish. Look look at the first thing they say at this dead end. Chapter uh, 13, verses 11 and 12, they use the first person personal pronoun, we or us, seven different times in two (laughs) verses. We We like us some us. Oh yeah, I love me some me. What have you done to us? We're going to die. It's all about me. Fear makes everything about me. doesn't matter uh, what other people are going through. It doesn't matter what the Lord has said. When I'm living in fear, it becomes all about myself. makes me cynical. It makes me uh, selfish. It makes me short-sighted. How quickly do we misremember things when we're living in a place (laughs) of fear? How quickly do we remember things differently than the way? I mean, look what the Hebrews are saying. Egypt was better, Moses. Take us back there. Why have you taken us from there? Life was good. Those 18-hour days weren't so bad after all. Right. 400 years of slavery, no big deal. Being beaten for no reason, send me back. At least we were alive. At least we were alive. (laughs) You have to think that Moses was thinking to himself, you idiots. Do you not remember how horrible life was there? It makes a cynical selfish, short-sighted. The, re- the reality is, is that dead ends will either be a place of despair or if you'll walk in faith and not fear, a place of dependence. Mm. The Father desires it to be a place of dependence. And so Moses says three things to them to kind of get their minds right here. First of all, he says, stop your fear. Verse 13, fear not. Quit being afraid. He confronts it head on. Now, I want to be clear about something, because this could be misinterpreted to to mean something different than what I am actually intending to say. So I want you to listen very carefully here, because we got to make a really important distinction. What we are talking about right now, about stop the fear, is a faith issue Uh that Moses is addressing in the people of God. God has said, I'm going to lead you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to prepare you. 
and they are doubting what God has said. This is a faith issue. And so what Moses is doing is he is saying, you need to repent, and you need to stop being afraid, and you need to trust in the Lord. Okay? This wasn't fear of spiders. No. This was fear of God in a bad sense. In a bad sense. God's got, yeah. he's out to get us. He's out to get us. He's going to lead us to death. Now, some of you are not going to like this, but, but we got to talk about it. Your bodies, every one of you, are broken. Every one of us have a broken body. Kidneys fail. Thyroids are underactive. One eye. One eye. Hearts go into arrhythmia. <laughs> you have all kinds of... I'm barely making it. Issues. Yeah. <laughs> Little duct tape and mirrors. <laughs> Little bubble gum and duct tape. I'm going to make it another six months. <laughs> we have... We have all kinds of maladies that we face, cancer, sickness, and then here's the, the great news. Eventually, after all of it's over, you die. <laughs> Thank you, brother. You like that? <laughs> yeah. I feel all better now. Now listen, this is a result not of, not of your something you did that you've never told. This is a result of sin in the big picture sense, the capital S sin, the sin disease that we all inherit the moment we are formed in our mother's womb, we are in sin, right? This is what leads to death. This is what sends the whole world into a cataclysmic failure three chapters into the Bible. Now, when something breaks down in your body, let's say you have some physical kidney failure, okay? You have a sense of fear that I might die from this. Now, should you pray during that time and ask God to heal your kidney? Absolutely you should. We're commanded to do that over and over and over again. We even have a, a, a formula for it for the elders to anoint with oil and pray the prayer of faith. We do that here at City on the Hill. We believe in that. We believe that God heals when we pray, just not every time we pray. Mm. And so what happens if God chooses sovereignly not to heal whatever thing, let's say in this example again, kidney failure, what do you do? Do you just not go to a doctor? Do you go, well, we prayed and God didn't heal, so uh, he must want me to die. <laughs> No, you go, to a you go to a doctor. You thank God for medicine. You thank God for modern medicine and doctors who know how to fix these things. Paul, and you took, go, a, Paul yeah. took a doctor with him on his missionary journey. Yeah, Luke. I mean, the author of Luke in, in Acts was an actual doctor. doctor. Yeah, a physician. So when, listen, when you have a physical problem in your life, you don't just pray, and then if nothing happens, don't do anything. But here's the other part about it. If it is a physical problem, kidney failure... I wouldn't come up to you and go, you know what, you need to repent of your fear. <laughs> you need to say no to fear. You need to be, have more faith. Some people would say that. Some people would say that. Yeah. And you need to shut it up. Shut your pie hole. Just tell them that. Just say, shut your pie hole. Because, and, and, and it gets even worse. What happens when it's above the shoulders? Oh, yeah. What happens when your brain is the thing that is messed up and the chemicals are not balanced in your brain and you have legitimate anxiety or depression and fear that comes out of that. You're going to come to your brother who's got anxiety and go, you need to stop the fear. Have more faith. <laughs> Suck it up. No, you go to a doctor and you get medicine if the doctor thinks you need medicine. And, and, and you don't act like this is a faith issue. It's a physical issue. So, so let me say this. We're going to say stop the fear, but that works itself out in two different ways. If it's a faith issue, you stop the fear, you repent of whatever lack of trust you have in God, and you walk in faith. If it's a physical issue, you stop the fear by going to see a professional about that thing and continue to walk through it. And then if that doesn't, if that doesn't help, if the medicine does, if there's no medicine, then you praise God 
anyways, because God is good and there is a plan and a purpose for wherever you are. He says, stop the fear, number one. Number two, we'll do this quickly. He says, uh, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. God is coming. He's going to save you. And, And then I love this. The third thing he says to them in verse 14, and stop whining. Shut it up. Stop whining. God, has God not done enough for you, imbecile? Stop complaining and trust him. So there's despair in dead ends. There's discouragement in detours. There's despair in dead ends. And that leads us lastly. To the dilemma of dry holes. And I got, if you'll give me five minutes, I'll do this. They pass through the sea. They've watched Pharaoh's army perish. Verse 22 says, now they're only three days into their journey. Three days on the other side of the sea, and they need water. Because they are in a wilderness, they're in a desert. So they come to a place called Marah. Chapter 15, verse 23 says, and when they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the waters because they were bitter. Just three days across the sea, what is happening? Verse 25 says that God tested them there. So this was a pass-fail test. You're either going to trust me. Remember, now think about what God had just done. Three days before, he had led them out through the sea, right? So now, they're just three days, and they've come to this place where there was known water, but they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. What did they do? It says they murmured against Moses. Moses, you brought us here. No, Moses didn't bring them there. God did. But Moses was a convenient you know, whipping boy, like the pastor, okay? So Moses, you brought us here. No, God brought you here. And it looks to me like they failed the test, didn't they? They failed the test. Okay, this is a pass-fail test. It's the first indication that there's some real growth that's gonna have to happen in in this people before they're ready to receive God's promise. Now notice something that happens. Verse, chapter 15. I wish I had time to read it. Go back and read chapter 15. You know what it opens up with? 18 verses of them singing and praising the Lord. Mm. It says, Moses and Israel sang this song. And you go back and you read those first 18 verses before they get to Mar, while they're on their way to Mar, because they're singing about the Red Sea, right? They're praising him. Oh, how he delivered us by his mighty hand. And they get there and there's no water and they murmur. (laughs) The Lord did this, the Lord did that. Like it's Sunday morning church, okay? The worship team... The band teaches us a new worship song, praising God for his mighty deliverance. Mm. And we get to the restaurant and they don't have any green beans. (laughs) What is a buffet without green beans? Lord, have you led me here today? Has God abandoned us? Has God abandoned us? Why the green beans? That wasn't even in the manuscript. That was the inspiration of God. But are you getting the point here? What does it say? Listen, folks. Yesterday's faith isn't sufficient for today's challenge. Yesterday's faith is not sufficient for today's challenge. Every single day brings a new challenge of faith. They've got to learn that. They've got to learn that. And they're not going to leave the wilderness until that sinks in. And they spend four decades in the wilderness taking a lap around Mount Sinai because that's basically the geography of that area in which they roamed. It was just basically taking laps around the base of that mountain. God said, you're not ready to go in, so you're going to go around. We're going to go around, and we're going to go around until you're ready. 
to go in. You see, there's this great discouragement of detours, but God is preparing us oftentimes. He's protecting us. There's the despair of dead ends that call for us to finally come to the end of ourselves and look to him. And then there's the dilemma of dry holes that requires that we come again to the starting point and say, I will trust you today. That's right. I trusted you yesterday, but that doesn't get me through today. I'm going to trust you today. You know, God's word is so practical. These stories are not told just for entertaining reading. No. They are told, New Testament tells us, that all God did all of these things for our benefit, that we may learn from them. Let's pray together. We thank you for the way you instructed Moses, the way you taught, the way you prepared, the way you protected your people, and that you're still doing that today. I pray for someone in the room today who is on a detour and maybe facing a dead end or maybe facing a dilemma of lack of supply. I pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you'll make the application for them specifically to their situation from your word and that they'll be able to look to you and pass the test of faith. Mm. Not ignoring the situation, not sitting down and doing nothing, but saying, I will press forward for my God is with me and he is my provider. Thank you, Father, for this great group of people this morning. We praise you for your preservation upon this body of believers and the work that you've given us to do. For it's in the strong and the powerful name of our Savior Jesus that we pray it. Amen. 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 Thank you all so much for being here today. What a wonderful time. Amen. God bless you.